This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of January 29th, 2024, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Uh, You probably can tell that I am recording this outside. There is a ton of renovation work going on inside my home, so this is about as quiet as it's going to get. Luckily, our theme today is kind of along the lines of reclamation. The concept behind the local not-for-profit group Recycle Force can be stated in a very elegant maxim, we're recycling electronics and recycling lives. Now, when you get into the nitty-gritty details, Recycle Force is not nearly as refined, but accepting things that are rough around the edges is integral to its mission. Entrepreneur Greg Kiesling hit on this set of solutions to two persistent problems in the early 2000s. Give people who have just been released from jail or prison a much-needed opportunity for temporary employment by training and hiring them to salvage recyclable materials from electronic waste. The ex-offenders also receive comprehensive services designed to get their lives back on track, including job skills, personal counseling, professional mentoring, literacy training, and connections to full-time permanent jobs. RecycleForce has employed thousands of formerly incarcerated individuals since 2004 and recycled about 10 million pounds of waste. But there's so much more to this story. Kiesling grew up about an hour outside of Indianapolis, and one of the major themes of his life has been transformations. Beginning at 16, he played a minor role in the drug trade, procuring marijuana with his friends, and regularly driving his family's station wagon to Florida to pick up pounds of pot to transport back to Indiana for people who would pay a delivery fee. He moved to Jamaica after dropping out of college for its easy access to pot, but he ended up becoming a straight-laced businessman who developed a vacation resort and joined the Rotary Club. In this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast, Kiesling discusses how Recycle Force's new headquarters in Indianapolis will help it do more with the recyclable materials and the people it trains. But he also talks at length about his own story and how he has learned the importance of giving people a chance to change and succeed. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Greg Kiesling, founder and president of RecycleForce. Greg, thank you for making time to come into the studio today. Well, thank you, Mason, for inviting me. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Now, I've explained in the introduction to the podcast basically what RecycleForce does, but I'm curious to know, when you explain this, RecycleForce, to potential users, people who may not have heard of it, is there like a question that you typically get? How I would explain it, we recycle the things society throws away. Our old electronics, our hair dryers, and the people we throw away. We put in prison and forget about. But the question I get often, are you afraid? And it's like, no. right? <laughs> I hand out you know, 194 paychecks every week. And I hear guys on the floor, man, if we mess with him, payroll's going to be delayed. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, we, we I certainly... I think you're more at risk, you know, sitting here of something happening, uh, certainly not greater than I am. I actually think I'm less. And so that's the question I'll often get. 
So it's related to the safety of the workplace, essentially. Correct. They yeah. think, you know, oh, you're going to be shot or hurt or, you know, so that's, I think, the thing that people have about people who've gone to prison and who come home. They're dangerous and terrible, and there are dangerous and terrible people. You know, I'm not against prison, only that when a person does their time and they come home, we just have to see them as a human being, and we have to not be afraid of them. And we have to have common sense. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, if you just came home from prison, Mason, I wouldn't bring you to my house, and this is my safe, right? <laughs> you know, so it was just sort of common sense things we do, but to have this fear that's exaggerated is just wrong. And that's a question I get the most. When you are explaining the program to potential employees, formerly incarcerated people, what is their question? What are they most interested in? Am I going to get violated and sent back to prison? 70%, we're better today in Marion County, but historically in my 20, almost 20 odd years of doing this work, seven out of 10 people who went back to prison in the state, and really the whole country, we're not unusual, did not commit a new crime. They had a technical rule violation of their parole, probation, community correction. And often it's because they could not get a job. Remember, you're ordered when you come home to pay, especially on probation and community correction, fines and fees. So an ankle bracelet costs $14 a day. In the old days, if you didn't pay that, you'd go back to jail. So we would always see people struggling. Okay, I got to decide, am I going to buy food or pay? this person. And so that's the thing, the number one thing, people are in fear. If I take this, you know, when you have a real job too, they come at you a little harder. They used to, the things are so much better. I mean, I really want to come out that what has happened in the last, I don't know, three, four years in Marion County is phenomenal. We have changed how we're looking at this population. It's healthy and it's good. And, but really historically, it's still out there. The agents, when you get a job, you know, remember the the state has, the counties all have, they're making their budgets from these things. So I need my money. You're working. Well, I need to pay my rent. I don't care. I can violate you and send you to prison. So I think that's, everybody's worried that if I take a real job, when I hustle, you know, nobody knows how much money I have. When I have a real paycheck and there's no laws that you get take, I've seen agents take the whole check. Now, again, that doesn't happen anymore. These are the old days. But you know, it's still the fear is there, especially if you've been, if you were violated and been back in prison for four or five years, you're coming home to Marin County, you don't know what's changed yet. And, and you're just, just distrustful of a system that's trapped you. That's fascinating. So when we talk about recidivism, just briefly, so it's possible that I, as a formerly incarcerated person, could be sent back, not for committing a crime, not for being arrested for a crime or being convicted of a crime is because I didn't follow the rules or someone determined I did not follow the rules of my release. It could be, you know, we have people that are not allowed, have to get permission to go to their mailbox. They have to get permission. We, we had to go, this is a recent one. We had a person that had no go zones. One of them was the Burger King on 10th Street. And he's on this big crew, right? We're working, we got these big contracts with the city to clean up the, the accounts. So he went to the Burger King and his ankle bracelet, he's in a no-go zone. So he got violated. Now, we got him out, right? We were able, th That's the changes that have happened. There's some better leadership and thinking uh, that we ever had. But, you know, he freaked out. And I remember the Burger King manager over there, wow, you mean I could lose 17 people? Because we had 17 people in the vehicle that had stopped there for lunch, and we had one guy that had the no-go zone. 
And uh, wow, I said, yeah, you need to call your state rep or your state, <laughs> or your state house, you the state senator and say, this is impacting my business. But, you know, it can be simple. And often the people have committed a serious crime. Often these are, I beat up my girlfriend or, you know, you've had these things where you're not allowed to go. So I don't want the public to think everybody's just innocent because they have committed crimes. But we've got to figure out how to make it easier to work and why we really created Recycle Force. So you could have a place where you could work. And if you had to leave and go to your probation meeting or your parole officer comes on site, you have to be drug dropped because they'll come so you can go to my bathroom and pee in a cup. And so we allow, and we don't take people off the clock. If you were working, if Mason Manufacturing had, had hired you and you and most employers aren't set up to do this, you would say, oh, even if you're a good employee, well, well, you go downtown and then you may go downtown and take you know, two hours and you know, they're backed up at the offices there. And, and so the employers go, I can't do this. It's too hard. And, but there's a period of time where it begins a lesson. You know, so the courts and, you know, the oversight, they're watching you. And if you can be, you know, exhibit good behavior, work, be responsible, we go back to court. We now have court liaisons that are in the court for these hearings. Your Honor, can we take off this angle bracelet? Or can we change his restrictions? And we win board and we lose by far and that because the judges have now know who we are gotcha so last year recycle force moved its operations from an industrial area by the 6570 north split about two miles to the east to 816 north german drive do i have that right well, you know, I never knew how far it was, but yeah, I guess you're probably about right. It's <laughs> I a, Googled it. Yeah, it's probably about two miles. Yeah, we're at the outside of the old uh, RCA plant. Okay, so the facility is a little more than 100,000 square feet. It was built specifically for Recycle Force. That was a custom job on the site of, yeah, the former RCA manufacturing plant. What was the cost of the project? It's a new market tax credit project. It's $13 million dollars. New markets are complicated. There, if there, I hope there's some economic development people listening to me here today. It's way too complicated. I invite anyone to go online with a couple of extra hours and try to figure out how this program works. <laughs> well, yeah. well, well, how do market tax credits? Yeah. No, so it's a $13 million deal, but it's, it, it's fun. It's important for us as a nonprofit business. Nobody really understands very well what we do. So we probably couldn't have gotten funding or we couldn't have got this level of funding. We would have probably been a, a you know, a, what I call a pole barn somewhere without this. So we're in a facility that'll last. It'll be here 50 years from now. So you essentially, you're able to get a loan or loans yeah, 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 yeah. designed specifically for not-for-profits in uh, kind of low-income areas. And the goal is to create employment. This is the big thing for, it, it's the most important part of these loans is to create employment for marginalized people. In our case, these are people coming home immediately from prison and jail. There's probably eighty to 100,000 felons in Marion County today, but many of them have been home a long time. We're really focused on those that come home today. There's probably 12,000 people in Marion County today that have been released in the last six months. Remember the public, 96% of the people that go to prison come home, often in two years or less. So it's a cycle. And now we're at a place where we have a permanent home, we can do a lot more than we've ever been able to do. We still got a lot of work to do. There's uh, road issues and stuff we got to do, but we're, we're working on them. What does the new facility allow you to do that you couldn't do before or that allows you to do more of what you did before? Recycling is a bulky operation. When you 
bring in stuff, it takes up a lot of space. And so it's going to allow us to bring in more material that we can then process down. I mean, you're limited by what you can get in and process and then store what you're going to get out. So that's maybe first and foremost, I now have better dock access. I have different areas that we can segregate different projects. One of my, my colleagues, Daniel Rowe, is in Ames, Iowa today. We received a Department of Energy grant to be able to recover rare earth metals off our circuit boards. For the public that know, rare earth is what makes the, it's all in this equipment we're looking at here now. And China's controlled those markets for a long time. The CHIPS Act that got passed is really decide how can we begin, because we're not mining a lot for rare earth yet, how can we recover? Well, we have. And we've done lots of experiments trying to get the circuit, you know, the little nodules off. We had the Japanese National Security Agency visit us, and they asked us, we had guys with pliers, how fast we could pull it off, right? And the guy was just boop, boop, boop. And they came back a few weeks later, and we had gotten about 400 pounds. I was just so proud of the guy, how far they were. <laughs> and I remember the, the guys go, we were hoping for something close to 40,000. <laughs> so what this new technology that comes out of Purdue, you know, we worked with the TAP program before. One of these Purdue folks has left, has now developed this new technology. The CHIPS Act and the Department of Energy has awarded them the grant with us as a partner. That equipment's going to ride in our office, and it's got a non-acid process to remove those rare earth metals off. So now I can bring in more material. Because remember, the board is this little piece. So now I got the space to bring in lots, lots more material. So you were leaving some material on the table, as it were. Oh, God, you have no idea the amount of projects. Like right now, Styrofoam, we, we have projects with warp speed. Remember COVID? Oh, sure. Project yeah. warp mm -hmm. speed. And they yeah. had all these Styrofoam coolers to get the viruses everywhere. And we've got a styrofoam machine now that we got through a grant with IDEM that is better, but the contracts they have would swamp me. I mean, I'm a little drowned in styrofoam, and then to process it down to these little cubes, it's just not enough space, and the, the economics of it make no sense. But those are the type of things we, we even can't do in this new facility. But now bringing in, like we're, we just recycled, I said what I'm allowed to say with my non-disclosure. We have the glucose meters and there were uh, close to a million of them recalled. And, you know, we sit in the Silicon Valley of logistics in, in, here in central Indiana. So when products are recalled or they don't sell and they have to come off the shelf, there are certain ones that we can take. Right In the old days, we did, we were limited by, okay, we got to get this off. You're going to have 45 semis show up, and can you take it? We go, no. So now we're going to be able to take more of these projects. So it'll be really, really interesting as, you know, we're starting to talk to some of the automobile manufacturers about some of their robotic equipment. We're starting to get that coming in. But, you know, it's just so much material. Now we can bring in a lot more at once. And, and what about employment? How does that change? How many folks are working for you? At any given really, time? the business is driven by the grants. I mean, we're, we're funded by the federal government. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my federal audit right now. And, you know, we just process through. We've been awarded about $25 million federal grant dollars over the last, I don't know, five, six years. And this past fiscal year, we just did $6 million. And we have to go through the federal audits to prove what we do. But it's really because we use subsidized employment. So we call the model ABC, any job, which is the subsidized period, B is the better job, 
this city has been wonderful and of how, how they're working with the Department of Public Works, the Parks Department, keep Indianapolis beautiful. God bless Jeremy. And the things there as they begin to expand wage paying. So you have a better job where you're still close enough that we can help manage the criminal justice mandates if they're still there. You know, the judge may say, hey, you can travel, but not out of Marion County. Right. Those are the things happen. And then the C is the permanent job. So that A portion is subsidized employment. Those are the federal grants. So we've been very good. I mean, Senator Young, Senator Braun, you know, Congressman Carson, Congressman Sparks have been very, very supportive. We have to be vetted, right, to be able to get these grants. But we've been very supportive. And we've been, I think, relatively successful. And so it's really the wages are driven by what does a grant require us to do? How much training does the worker have to be involved with versus the work? And so we, we got these ways we calculate that. So it's a little more complicated than like, Truck brings in stuff, the dock. <laughs> you have enough room for 200 people, so you hire 200 people. Yeah, we're not And then like they that. do that. This yeah. is a lot more complicated. You know, I, if, if you're a regular business, you come in and look at me. In fact, I've had some friends that come in. You ain't doing this right. <laughs> you could be making money. But then if you're a workforce development, which is sort of where I come from, really, you look at it, oh, my God, there's too much work, right? So it's really this balance of my wife and I do, we're, you know, we're mom and dad. It's like, you know, your child's at home and he needs to learn how to work and how tough are you versus how much more time do you get people to develop. But the grants describe what that is. Like right. this, this Department of Energy is going to have grant is going to have a training component that we're working with Ivy Tech now to design. So how, how long would that take? I don't know yet. That's what we're working on. But I would assume that the, in a larger facility, your ceiling for workers is higher. Not really workers. We've been able to, we would reduce projects to get the workers. We've been trying to serve three to four to 500 people. I mean, technically, we've, we've sort of will be up to 600. We probably will. But it's really, the grants allow us to do, we can now do more gotcha. work. We can do more detailed work. We can get people to feel better. You know, when a mayor comes to see us or the council comes in to see us, you're doing important work for our city. You know, all this recycling that just came in from the recycling bin, you guys sort it. It's important for our city. And so it just allows our, our people to feel better. Instead of sitting in a classroom, typical workforce development, you're in a classroom, you're trying to learn how to work, you know, work through a book. And most of us, most of the people we serve are contextual. And you have to have some book work. You have to understand OSHA and regulations. And, but you learn how to work contextually, probably like all of us did. And so we're just trying to find that balance, you know, between those two things. So how many do you have right now? I have 194 people that we gave a check to this past. Well, I'll give to check tomorrow. Now, are these people through the? These are formerly incarcerated people. All every single person. But you also have a full time permanent workforce. Oh, we have full, yeah, yeah, we have both full time staff. I think we have 32 or 33 okay. permanent staff, and we will sometimes hire. In fact, often our my goal is that eventually everybody that I hire permanently, they become the case managers, the the people who recycle. They are the people that came off our floor. Do you have any idea of how many people you have employed? At Recycle Force, narrowed part with the federal government, we're approaching 4,000 people that alone. Just through the Re Recycle Force work? Just through the Recycle Force work. About yeah. 4,000 yeah. people. Yeah, so for the last. Recycle Force really started in 2004, you know, when things changed and how the federal government contracts came in, welfare to work. You know, there was a big change with IBM and how we changed welfare to work. And I remember my wife saying, 
you need to go do something else. And we we always struggled. We we were, in those days we were trying to work with the other employers. You know, a good example: Host Marriott hired lots of people from us. Uh, you know, between '96 and '9/11, if you'd gone out to the airport, went to Cinnabon McDonald's, it was one of our people. We had a really good program out there. But '9/11 happened, and everything changed. I can remember we had contracts at the athletic club. We were working with people down at Columbia Club and everything, and they're going to put anthrax in my food. Uh, uh, so that fear just took off. And then, of course, TSA regs. And, and so that was the big change where, you know, we were probably doing even more because we could get out. When we came to Indianapolis in 96, the unemployment rate in Indianapolis was under 1%. And welfare reform happened. You know, there was this idea to uh, try to help these folks get work. But as fast as we could employ them, we'd watch them disappear through these TRVs. Through the violations. Through the violations, right? right? No, it's in the back. And, and like you say, why didn't Bob here? Oh, he got picked up. On a, everywhere you think is bad for a minute, and then I'll say, wait a minute, he didn't do anything. Wow, he, he hadn't even got his first check yet. <laughs> I haven't given his check. We used to try to pay weekly to try to keep the, well, I'm, I do a whole back now as we got so many people. But in the early days, we just, we almost went to work today, pay today, so people could have the money to be able to pay the fees and fines. Oh, worried, gotcha. Right? For a long time, we paid you the week of, but it just became too hard. It was, you had too many people. It's hard to close your payroll all the time. Any idea? Just recycle force. How many pounds of electronic uh, waste? Uh, well over 10 million. Yeah, I know that one. Well over. Oh, well over. Uh, we argue about that number a lot, right? But it, it's well over 10 million pounds. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our chat with Greg Kiesling, founder and president of Recycle Force. So uh, I think you mentioned to me before that Recycle Force was paying like $11,000 a month for your lease yes. in the prior location. Yes. And now you own the location, but I you have. But well, we don't take the, this is what the, the complications of new market tax credits. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so there is a, we're, there's a 501c2 that is the technical owner of the building. And then we lease from them. And we have to do that for, well, we're, we're already in the deal for a while, but we got, I think, five more years to go. It's like a lease to own situation. Well, we have to refine it. So, you know, oh, okay. the new markets are so for the capital gains taxes to be, you know, utilized by the people who put up the money for these these tax credits. So it's a seven year, it's too complicated for to explain here, but it's seven years. When you hit the seventh year, then you can refinance and we'll be at a market rate. You know, we'll just have to go out. So and so then we will be the the 501c2 will probably go away. I, I think they'd like to go away now. <laughs> right? But in the meantime, your cost of being in the building is it's going to. I'm up to you know fifty thousand plus just for the rent. You know, we're new in the building, so we're still figuring out how AES and electric bills and gas bills and snow removal and all these things. So we're still gauging. But no, we've had a huge, huge. Uh, well, it will be a huge uptick in our infrastructure cost. So it almost quadruples. Are you are you set to handle that? 
Well, I'm very confident we could. It just comes down to what do we do for people, right? Because there are often people in our program when their subsidized period ends, they're not ready or even, you know, in winter, I'm in winter now, there's not as much work that the city has that we can get people out. So I have to keep people unsubsidized. So it just is my heartbreak, you know, when I have to pay more rent, I have to say, you got to go home. Or, you know, we certainly, we're trying to get people jobs, right? That's what we do, right? But, you know, if you've got still wearing your ankle bracelet and, you know, I'm out of my subsidized period, you know, we have to pay. So it just comes down to do I pay the rent and make certain the tax credit people get their money and they're all happy, which I've got to do, versus trying to help. And so those are terrible choices that make. And then the, the other part you should really point out, we have the Lilly Endowment has been extraordinary, right? The endowment, in, you know, in the early years, this was a population I don't think they looked at strongly. I mean, I think everybody cares, but there is a, they're there. They're looking at violence reduction. So they've helped us now to extend people. So those were in the end of some of the grants we've got from them. This allowed us to keep these people longer, which is buys that time to, you know, often, you know, you'll get hired by a job, but you can't start for four more weeks, right? Or two weeks, whatever the case may be. And that person's living paycheck, paycheck, we can get them. So a little bit of that is happening. And then we've got other philanthropic support, the Clues Fund. The Indianapolis Foundation will provide smaller grants that help maybe offset the cost of a case manager or those type of activities. So when you're asking for money, people inevitably are going to ask you, does this program really work and prove it? So does this program reduce recidivism? Yes. <laughs> you know, obviously, right? But it's more than a yes. I'm a big believer in bringing science into this work. And the only way you can do that is through the scientific method. You have to have a treatment group and a control group. So we've pulled off one random control trial so far in my history. Uh, and that random control trial showed over 30 months. The people we served, served made almost $6,000 more money. They had almost 8% less violent crime, which is murder, bad stuff, right? We're not talking petty crime, not the TRVs. They were actually arrested more than the treatment group because they had income. And these are the early days back this period from 12 to 18. This has helped us change it, right? Because we were able to show, you're just picking this guy up because you want the money. And then we'd have to, you know, you're taking the federal dollars and monetizing them into the, the system, right? So it, it helped us change a lot. But this random control trial, several sites across the country that got involved in, in this from San Francisco to Syracuse, to Atlanta and us and Milwaukee, many other places too. And we were the only group that had a big enough uh, return on investment to warrant a really detailed ROI on us. And when they got into the ROI, the federal government had given us all each about $7,800 per person. But because we're generating revenue, the evaluators and the researchers of the program, I mean, I fought with them for a long time. We have to put in your revenue. And I go, why? <laughs> right? The way I want to say it, you, the federal government gives me a dollar and I generate another dollar over here. But in, in a way, they were correct because he said, if Congress sees this, Congress is going to go, wow, 78. No, they have to understand what you're doing because nobody really understands employment, social enterprise and that. So anyway, we had this big random control trial. It's worked. Every meeting I have with the Lilly Endowment or the IU Health Foundation people or anybody that will listen to me, we need to fund more research. So there are some people who get enrolled in the program who do end up committing crimes and then oh, getting... Oh, God, yeah. Well, not uh, perfect. Yeah, no. right. 
right? I, I could do what we all do of those who complete my program, right? So if you commit a crime, I just wouldn't count you in my numbers, right? But we don't do that. We are really trying to look at this like, you know, anybody would have to, for almost any, I mean, even if you've got a product you're going to put out there, you got to test it. You can't, you know, say, oh, it works. Trust me. I want to dig back into your past a little bit because your path to starting Recycle Force was pretty unusual. You grew up in Winchester? Winchester, Indiana. Indiana, yeah. which is just east of Muncie? Just east of Muncie. I like to say north of Richmond, but in the okay. uh, I'm a direct descendant, you know, the Quaker country. I'm a direct descendant of Jeremiah Cox, who got a land grant, an answer from George Washington or, and Thomas Jefferson, to come after the Treaty of Greenville to settle Indiana in 1802. So I'm like an old-time Quaker, Eastern Indiana person. Tell me a little bit about your parents real quick. My father was a high school football coach. That's how we started. My, my dad was a, a football coach and teacher and then moved in and, be, and eventually became a superintendent in uh, you know, administration and was superintendent of two school corporations, Randolph County. And then my mother went on this you know, kind of path of spiritual awakening, I guess you would call it. We'd have to do, we had to learn how to meditate and mindfulness, and we followed Yogananda and the Maharishi, you know, and uh, she became a health food guru and a massage therapist. And uh, when I left for Jamaica, I'll jump ahead, but when I remember when my parents had to fight the battle of zoning in Winchester, it was kind of, we don't do that kind of rubbing of people in this. Day. But at the by the end, my mother had almost every single resident, the 5,000, I think she had like 3,400 clients. So the whole <laughs> town became as great. So I've had a, a kind of unusual, or I mean, I don't know if it's that unusual. We're having 60s. We think we all went through a little bit of this stuff. So uh, you went to Winchester High School? I went to Winchester High School. When you were 16, you became part of a marijuana selling yeah, organization. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I you know, Certainly, when we grew up, you couldn't find marijuana was hard to find. So if you pulled together with your friends and you figured out how to buy some, you'd split it up. And then, of course, well, now we have four more friends. And, you know, so I, I don't want to think I'm Scarface or anything here. No, this, it's but, okay. but yeah, yeah, but it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not embarrassed about it. I mean, my dad's passed and I, I know he didn't like to hear about it. It troubled him a lot. I understand marijuana a little bit. Okay. <laughs> what was your role? Exactly. You're part of this. I would say every one of us who went to high school in my time, I don't know your time too, but there was always a group of guys who would go out and try to find weight, right? And so in my day, it would be, you know, to get a quarter pound and to have four guys split an ounce. Then it moved from a pound and have four guys get a quarter pound and that kind of stuff. So to say I'm the leader is probably not true because none of us were the leaders. I'm sorry. I'm referring to you know, an article that you pointed me to that so you actually would drive down I the would drive, Florida. I would, I would dr drive down to the northern part of Florida and load up. Where you apparently had contacts. Well, I, would, I had people up here. There were older, a lot of older people that would hire people like me to you know, pay me $5 a pound and throw some in the back of my oh. dad's day. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. So oh, this yeah, wasn't yeah. just for your operation. This was no, for I, no, no, I would get – often if you got paid in with a pound of weed, like, hallelujah. I've got, I got weed to smoke for a while, right? Okay. So you would take the family station wagon – down to yeah, Florida. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Buy the stuff. Well, it was, I didn't buy. I didn't buy anything. Right. All I'm doing, I'm supposed to drive here. Somebody will meet me. I mean, I'm, to this day, it's just amazing. You know, how did I find these people? How did you know what we were <laughs> doing? Right? And in hindsight, like, how did this happen? You'd show up, and there'd be some. Uh, you good? 
Uh, yeah, that's me. All right, pull your car up here. And so we throw it, and I bring it back to. Oh, so, so you're delivering. You're I'm delivering, and then I would get paid. Right, you're UPS I, in this situation. Yeah, in, in those days, it was five dollars. You know, five, five bucks a pound. Five dollars a pound. How many I, pounds could you get in your car? Oh, you know, I, I don't want to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> think of the old Rambler station wagon, and you remember they had those folding seats in the back, right? Yeah. And now you could open them. Did you ever get caught? Well, uh, technically, yes, but uh, I mean that's a complicated story. I don't know. If we got time, I'll, I'll try to go through it. That's but, okay. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But, but technically, no, no. And your folks never caught on? I think, do they can't, get, yeah, my parents had some idea what was happening. Okay. Before my dad died, he's, he's not about to die, but he's, you did it, didn't you? I go, oh, a tiny bit, dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so, yeah. So but this no. was, I mean, this was, you did this for years. I did it from 16 until I went to, I went to Jamaica for this, right? It's about a 10-year period of my life that I post every single morning I woke up, I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do today? What are you going to do as in, how am I going to move How am I going to figure out how, you know, to find weed to smoke? Because basically right. it was finding weed to smoke. So wait, so let's back up real quick. So you went to Earlham, but you dropped out. Oh, I, so I barely, my, that, that's the family story. My dad said I was there six days. I lasted six weeks. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't early very long because I'm in high school in my sophomore year and I had a High Times magazine. My my favorite story. High Times magazine. High Times magazine. Were they publishing back then? It was 76. This is 74. This is 1974. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It came out even before that. 73, I think it started. Okay. But I'm in like the fourth edition. The Rolling Stones took domicile in Jamaica when they were escaping taxes from you know, and they linked with Island Records. So this story about the Stones being there, and in that story, Bob Marley's not fa that famous yet. He's famous in Jamaica, but, you know, most of us have very little understanding of it. And so there's a story, and Bob is saying, you know, I'm smoking a pound a week. And I thought, God, where can you find a pound, pound a week? <laughs> right? Wait, this is a story in Rolling Stone. So, no, 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 a story in High Times. Oh, in high times. In oh, high okay. times. I, if I said Rolling Stone, I apologize. Sorry, and Bob Marley is saying that. Bob Marley, and it's uh, the, the Rolling Stones. Right. I'm sorry. Keith Richards that and Mick me. Jagger are talking about going to Negril, this town that I ended up going to, where they could find the best. Because they asked Bob, where's the best weed? Well, it's Negril. And so when I got there, so I decided I need to find myself dad, and I'm going to be responsible, and I'm leaving Earlham. And <laughs> That was the cover story. It was. I sold it really well. We had yeah. a college fund. My, you know, when I grew up, I had to cut. You know, we had this big kind of farm, and we grew vegetables. And you know, we were kind of this. Even though my parents would die, they never called themselves hippies. We were kind of living that kind of hippie life in a way, because my mom is. You know, we're doing spiritualism, and we're growing our holistic food. We chop firewood. You know, it was the great oil crisis. You know, where we couldn't get gas and gasoline lines, and so we chopped wood and all that. So every dollar I put in, my dad would match it. And so I had a, you know, a nice little hunk of money, you know, not a lot, but enough. And you know, he said, you go to college. I said, Dad, I'm going to make a deal with you. If I go, I get a control. Because his name was on the account. He goes, I get to control the money. He goes, well, I think I can trust So he took it. And so that's, that's the part I think he got most upset with. I took uh, the money. Oh, and I went to Jamaica, and I bought a piece of land. So you drop out of Earlham, go to Jamaica. Because you thought you would be doing what? I was going for the golden age of marijuana. I really thought this will be exciting, right? First, I'm just sort of going. I mean, the t you, you, you could tell Negril was starting to grow as a, tour a little tourism market. 
Bob Seger went there. Uh, Bob Skaggs, I actually got to know about Bill Murray was there. Uh, you know, you would see that clientele. If you just go there, you walk down the street, oh, uh, hi, Bill. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, so it, it was so small. I mean, the, the whole population of the people where my wife's from was maybe three to 4,000 people. There wasn't electricity in this one, the area that I came to until 1979. And so it was just this sort of hippie hangout. And so when I got there, you know, I thought, God, and I, and I met this Jamaican guy. Because really, I went there first and he said, hey, I can get you land. And so I went back and got the money out of the bank and flew down to Jamaica. And there was a woman who had, uh, her, her husband was a tax collector. And she had inherited from his death 36 acres of land. And it had to be developed. And we had to bring in electricity and water and sidewalks and all this. And this was the launch of the Caribbean Basin Initiative by then President Ronald Reagan as we were trying to bring democracy. We'd been a, Michael Manley been our socialist leader and we're trying to change. So this man, his name is Mancy Black. He's passed, but he's a just a tremendous man. And so there was 3000 I guess I could say about $3,000. And so he said, we're going to go buy land. So we went to this lady. And we'd walk, and he'd take a stone. We're going to take from that tree. And he'd throw the stone and hit it. And she'd go, aye, to that tree. And he th he marked him out with his stones, right? And we're walking. And every time the woman said, aye, right? And then when we're done, he says, now give her the $3,000. So I said, okay. And I gave her the $3,000. And I sit there going, wow, what have I just done? <laughs> right? We had no title, no agreement. But... What she ended up doing, because she trusted Manzi, and you know, here you've brought in this white man. The Caribbean Basin Initiative had to have an American investor. You could not be, you had to have an American. And so there was the Bank of Nova Scotia, which was the bank that ended up giving us our loans. But I fit that bill. And so maybe if I'd not trust, I mean, I was naive. I'm 20, God, what am I, 23 years old? If I was not so naive, you know, maybe I would have never pulled this off, but boy, we did. The next thing you know, we write a business plan. We go into the Bank of Nova, Nova Scotia. We present the plan. And I can write. I'm not terrible. And so I kind of put a business plan together. And I can remember the guy sitting there going, I like this. He goes, an American. He looked right at American, two Jamaicans. I think we could fund this. And I literally can remember to this day holding onto the bottom of this chair <laughs> going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm going to get alone. Right? And we did. So what was the business? A hotel. It's you called, built a hotel? Oh, yeah. We built a little resort called Somerset Village. So then from 83-ish there on, all of a sudden, Ambassador George Mickelson, they were flying one-day trips down to the Holiday Inn in Montego Bay. And somehow I met, there was Amber Vacations, I'm going to forget names, but I met this person and said, I'm a Hoosier, could you come down? And so all of a sudden, people started coming. I hosted my vice principal from high school who married the guidance counselor. The, the, I mean, I had – and another thing I did, when I married my wife, I became a Rotarian. I changed. I cut my hair. I was Mr. Button-Up. And so we're all of a sudden bringing – you know, my dad's proud as could be, right? Because I go from this guy to – we do. it's called Somerset Village. We had all these charters. Eventually, Apple Vacations, FunJet Vacations. Sunburst holidays out of Boston, New York, all of a sudden found there was still a market for hippies that had gotten jobs and grown up a little bit. And we exploded. We became this, you know, there's no all-inclusive hotels yet. There's not a sewer line. 
we ended up passing a code in our time. I became chairman of the hotel association in my region because I went from being, you know, the guy that got one of the first Caribbean based initiative loans. I married the local girl. I became a Rotarian. I went from what I went to try to do to be kind of a, a marijuana or a ganja guy to a businessman. So that's the point of the story. I mean, I started here in America and I went to Jamaica to think that's what I would do. Instead, I became a businessman and developed a hotel and became, you know, this guy that, and we were on top of the world. It was 1995. So I became the head of my Rotary Club out of all the Rotary Clubs in the world, Indianapolis. We just got a brand new fax machine. By this time, we have electricity. And there was this fax. So when a fax would come, ooh, bookings, right? And you'd get the fax and you'd start reading it as it would come off the paper. And I saw Rotary Club, Rotary Club of Indianapolis, Indiana. And it was Jim McClellan who was, you know, Governor Holcomb's. Do you know Jim? A little bit, yeah. Okay. So it was Jim McClellan who was the president, or about to be the president of Rotary Club. He'd send me this email. So I, I, by the time I have fun, I'm on the phone and I call him directly. And it was expensive for me to call Jim McClellan, but we did it. And I said, and he goes, Craig, I haven't even finished sending the facts yet. I said, you found me. I'm a Hoosier. I'm a Hoosier. And so I remember there was um, my dad, one of the returns went to Winchester to find my dad. And I remember he called me and said, the, some big shots from the Rotary Club of Indianapolis came today. And I said, what for? And he goes, see if you're worthy of working with. You better be glad you got a good dad. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and uh, so that, so we had these projects from 91 until about 95. And the other thing that's happened now, development is really starting to happen in Jamaica. The all-inclusives. Butch Stewart, who has run Sandals and came down, was really a masterful uh, businessman. And we had we had got past an ordinance in our town that you couldn't build a hotel taller than the tallest coconut tree on your land. We thought that was so cool, right? We'd get the Jamaicans that we'd had this ordinance. We named ourselves the Capital of Casual. Uh, it's a line that's taken off. I should have trademarked it, but that's mine and just a few other people's lines that we put together. So we had this really cool market. But now the big guys come, Butch comes in and he goes, will you accept me? And I remember my wife had on this yellow dress and he goes, you know, you've married the most beautiful yellow bird in the island, right? And I, I knew he was playing us, but I said, will you let me come in? Will you accept me? So they came in, but now we're gentrified. The world changes. and. We're getting a different market. We're getting the all-inclusive people who are wanting a different market. Of course, the yuppies are now a little bit older, too. And the moment that I knew something had to change, Jerry Springer did a live broadcast with Spring Break from the property next door to me. And we were hosting the Spring Break. It was just, I'm older now, so God, what have I been by? I'm almost 40. I'm like 30, maybe 39, 38, 39 at that time. And we were also putting a sewer line. We've lobbied. I've worked with the United States USAID and the European Union to bring in the sewer line there. So our road is no bigger than this table, right? So we had to put this sewer line down. And so I can remember bringing guests in. It was like a Tarzan movie. We're carrying luggage on our top. We couldn't get the vans down. And I said, you know, it's not going to be bad. And this Jerry Springer moment. And the, the people were just so drunk. And I go, I'm tired. And there was a Rotarian, uh, Don Moreau, Colonel Don Moreau, whose son is Bill Moreau, who was Bill's mother or Don's wife had just passed. And he was there. And we, he really become, I mean, I love that man too. It was another great man in my life that changed me dramatically. And I remember my wife said, what could we do for a year or two if we went back? You know, the markets are changing. The sewer line's got to get in. 
let's see if we can go do something. And I remember Don looked at my wife and said, Clinton's going to sign that welfare reform law. Your husband could do this. And I flew back and forth and met with Don. And at that time, I think he was the head of the state fair for uh, uh, Governor Bayh at the time, but then Governor O'Bannon. And he took me around and just introduced me. He'd always say, he's going to help change our workforce. And I would shake people's hands thinking, what's he? And I remember this moment. I am. I'll never, <laughs> I'll never forget that. And so we came back, still think we'd only be here a few years. And, you know, just like we did try to go back at 07 or 08 when the economy collapsed. But my life changed from, I think that's the thing of the story. And it's how I want my people to get this chance to. I was this young man who for a good eight, nine, ten years of my life fancied myself. I'm a little small-time guy, right? But I fancied myself that I can do something. And I finally just go to Jamaica and think I'm going to become the king of the world. Instead, I became a businessman, cut my hair, got lungs, changed my life dramatically, dramatically. I can remember I can remember that, God, I don't hardly smoke any weed at all anymore. Right? <laughs> I, I can't. I got I to gotta work. I have loan payments to make. I got reports to file, right? So that's the story that I think inspires what we do today is that people can change. And it needs a Don Moreau or a Mickey Mauer or people like this who come in and just sort of look at you and go, I have confidence in you. That's what we're trying to do with the, the folks we're serving. You know, I know you did something. But I trust you, man. I know you can do this. You can go recover rare earth and help lower our dependence upon China. You can do it. And you're like, for real? Like, yeah, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> and I think that's the jigs of our model, what we do, and what has happened in my life. That somebody believed in me. I've never gone to college. I don't think it's worthwhile for most people like myself. I don't have any debt. It is this thing that's important for all of us to trust. The people we look at, we don't understand. We don't know them. I have no idea you know, what people are even saying and talking about, but you trusted, and that trust worked out well. My thanks again to Greg Kiesling. I very reluctantly left out a significant portion of our interview that dealt with the death of Greg's son, Chancellor, who took his own life while serving in the Army Reserve. However, there's a documentary about Kiesling's efforts to educate government officials and the public about the enormity of the problems of suicide in the military. It's called Self-Sacrifice, A Son, A Soldier, A Suicide, and it can be found on YouTube or through PBS. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ that I want to bring to your attention. First up. As the Indiana Economic Development Corp faces a steady stream of calls from critics for more transparency, state lawmakers from both political parties have filed legislation aimed at requiring the Job Creation Agency to disclose more about its activities. Peter Blanchard has more on the increased scrutiny. Also in this week's paper, Daniel Bradley chronicles a day in the life of Noblesville Mayor Craig Jensen as he exercises his high-touch, radically transparent, and 16-hour-per-day approach to governing. And Dave Lindquist previews the tech and entertainment hub to be called Black Future House that will be featured during NBA All-Star Weekend in Indianapolis. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>